Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and CSV file woes. We are your host, electrical engineers, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dillman. This is episode 337. Uh, so before we kick it off, I think people are getting the, the gist at this point for the last couple of weeks. MacFab is hiring. Go to MacFab.com slash jobs. Apply now. We want you. Yes, you listening right now. There's a lot available, so go check them out. Yes. Um, All right. So uh, Project Snacky update. Um, so Project Snacky is a snack machine I am hacking and modifying Honestly, gutting it basically, and then putting all new electronics into it. Um, so last week I got the circuit board all operational and running. Everything was working fine for that. Uh, the smoke monster did not get released from the, the from the board when I fired it up, which was good. Um, I finished up the firmware for the input. What I'm calling the input side of Snacky is done. Like. So the, like key, the keypad. keypad works, mm. switches work, that kind of stuff. All that is functional on the firmware side and talks to what it needs to talk to so far. You're being uh, not, not <laughs> giving all the information, right? Not all the information, <laughs> but enough. Yeah. So that, that all works fine right now. Um, I probably need to like add more functionality to it eventually, but for the MVP... Because it's Snacky's event is coming up soon, very shortly, like in like three and a half weeks. So um, you're getting moving. MVP is like the great thing about this project, though, is like so a year ago when I was discussing this with with an XR group, um, we came up with this huge list of stuff. And I'm like, and even back then, we knew feature creep was going to be a problem with this project. Sure. And so we just went through and went, and we just marked stuff that was, this is this is what it needs it's to have. The, the criticals. For MVP. Yeah. Mission criticals. And we are, we are, I think we're going to hit all those. No, and guess what? Nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to hit all the mission criticals for the first revision or version of Snacky. Um because Snacky is, as long as Snacky goes well at, at DEF CON, it's going to come back. Sure. And so we want to, uh, I, I envision this project as like a multi-year thing. Is like, it will, it will get, every, every year, year more stuff go, happens to it. Mm-hmm. Um, like I'm already like having new hardware design for the board to add more stuff. Um, Not to fix things, but just to add just to add stuff, yes. Um, there is going to be one addition that we do need to have, though, uh, for this year. And um, that's on the output side. So the output side, the firmware is skeletonized, frameworked. I don't know what the put it like. All the... All, it talking to all the things it needs to talk to works. Just none of the other stuff is integrated yet. What do you like mean? Like when by you're bringing up a board for the, like what you do when you uh, when you write your firmware for your before you gets to your firmware designer. So oh, to speak. okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've like I've made sure all the hardware actually functions how it should. Uh, so all that stuff works. So like the real time yep. clock works. The motor drivers are working correctly. The display works great. Like all that stuff works fine. Now I've got to glue it all together right so so what i've been doing recently and and this has worked out really well with my firmware guy i will i basically during my design work i will consult my firmware guy about like pinouts and you know if he if there's like critical things that need timers and they're attached to certain pins i make sure that my firmware guy has uh, input on those kinds of things. But <clears throat> what I've done recently is I get the very first prototypes. I make sure they power up and then I write all my code for them. Then what I do is anything that is like shift registers or or any kind of like memory devices, I will go and write out the entire bit definition in the schematic 
and point to every single bit and say, if if this is high, it does this. If this is low, it does that. And I make a whole map for my firmware guy in the schematic because he gets the schematic and it's great because he doesn't ask have to ask any questions because he like if there's a button that's like, oh, press this button and it activates this mode, just go look at my shift register bit, bit definition and it makes things so much easier to do that as opposed to having to mm. explain how my schematic works. Yeah, how everything is supposed to function. Right, right. And and I think he prefers that. Like he has the certainly the capability of reading schematics, but I think just looking at a map makes his life a lot easier. Oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so... An interesting issue popped up. Um, I knew this might have been a problem when I was doing initial design. It was one of those like, ah, if it becomes a problem, we'll fix it because I know how to fix it. Right. Well, um, you need it now because we. <laughs> well, it was one of those like, sure, we can, but we can easily add it. Sure. Uh, so it's not a big deal. The because um, we're using Arduino Megas to be plugged into because we just didn't have time to do all the design work to embed them. Um, that's actually invert. I've already done the embedded side of it, like for version two of the boards. Hmm. We're going to put the microcontrollers onto the board. Um, but um, so the problem is how Arduinos, the Arduinos themselves work is they're powered. You can power them over, over USB or like the voltage in on the, or like yeah, it has a switch that will pin. bounce between them. An automatic switch or switcher on it, right? Um, so the what happens though is because of what is powering, or like what's the brain of Snacky, so to speak, can also power them, power these these Arduinos um, when you turn off Snacky's like nervous system i guess is a good way to put it basically like the board the board if you turn off the board the arduinos are still powered up right so they're still left in whatever state they were in when the board was powered up and then you go and turn the board back on well all that hardware comes back up online <laughs> and it can but freak the arduinos out. are like <laughs> no the Arduinos don't freak out they just are doing what they're doing and so some but hardware you don't know is what fine that doing is, that, but some, right? Yeah, the Arduino doesn't know that. Oh, I had to resend auxiliary. Oh, I or I not auxiliary code. I got to resend all the initialization code. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the Arduinos don't know that, right? So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to put in a. I just got to wire a I/O pin to the five volt rail on the board so that when. It basically has a power good. So if it detects, hey, this pin is low, stop doing stuff and go back to the beginning and wait for it to be high. And then, so then it knows to rerun yeah. through initialization. Right, right. Which this um, isn't a problem if everything is turned on cold, right? Yeah, if everything's turned on cold, everything works fine. Right. But it's it's the problem with like, let's say we were doing maintenance on it. Uh, uh, like having to fix something or having to swap a part out or whatever. Um, we would just probably shut down just the the board side because it's just a button inside, just a you know, big old toggle switch. Turn that thing off. Then you can swap the part, put it back in, turn it back on. Well, now you have to go in and like power cycle the, the, uh, the battery backup of the machine now, which is like, well, that's a pain in the butt. Mm. Um, so I'm just going to add a little, little, jumper wire to go from the five volt rail on the board to an IO pin on, on the uh, Arduinos. And I, I basically broke out all the pins on the Arduino that wasn't using on it on the Arduinos either. So it's, you know, just a little jumper pin. Cause they're all the, the, the Arduinos just plug into um, headers, right? Just headers. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's a really easy fix. In fact, you can put it on the bottom side of the board and no one will ever know. Yeah. Well, I, I broke all the pins I'm not even using out, too. So I can just go from one of those to the 5-volt rail right. pretty easily. Yeah. And um, and then just write some code that basically in the loop just check, hey, is you know this thing messed up? If so, 
Or if, if is power good bad? <laughs> and if so, just jump back up to you know the setup and wait. Right, right. Yeah, so that I mean that doesn't that, even really stop anything. You just have to wire that in and write some extra code, like yeah, like six lines of code. Yeah, yeah, it's super easy. No, it was just it was just something I knew that would be a problem, but for I just ignored it. Yeah. Um, and uh, not really too big of a deal, but um, because because the obvious solution would be if I could, well, I could do this, I guess. It's take the Arduinos and then remove this the power switcher part of the circuit with a hot air gun. The problem is, let's say it's at DefCon and we need to replace an Arduino. Well, I also need to go now find an, a hot air gun to modify the Arduino before I even plug it back in. Right, right. So it's like, eh, that's not. It's easier to just put in some code and a and wire a bodge, jumper yeah. to have a power good signal. Yeah, for sure. It's not a bodge. Bodges are fixing features that don't work right. This is adding a feature. <laughs> it's a creep wire. We are adding a feature. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, we're that, adding it, a feature to it. Cool. Well, but I mean, and in a future board revision, that's just a small little trace. Well, no, in the future board revision, what I was getting at with this oh, is yeah. it's going to be on the board and... You don't need when it's this on switcher. the board. I can actually just separate out the USB interface won't be powered by the uh, the uh, the brain basically of Snacky. So then I don't have to worry about it. Right. So the Arduino's come up at the same time as the board every time. Yeah, it's called a uh, bus powered mm-hmm. instead of being uh, host powered. Right. So, yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm hoping on Wednesday I have the output code kind of done. I got to basically write the algorithm. The big one is I got to write the algorithm for the current sensing, which is because you do have motors do turning, right? Oh, yeah, I, I can selectively tell it what motors to turn and all that good stuff. But but I you don't, don't you know have it yet. Where you know yet. how much how many times they've rotated, right? Correct. Don't have that yet. Um, basically, all I got to do there is put in a, a pulse detector on the current sensor. And that's once that's done, then one pulse well, is one rotation. You mean a pulse detector in code? You like you already have that done in hardware, right? Oh, yeah. That, the current sensor is there. I just got to put in a pulse detector on that that analog input line. Oh, right, right, right. So you're basically just reading values. And when you see a large enough change, that's a yes. Yeah. Drop change not you're looking for a negative edge not a positive edge well but if it keeps rotating it'll go back up right yeah but you don't want to wrote you don't want to trigger your rotation on the positive edge you want to do it on negative edge oh yeah okay so negative edge every time rotates a a known one rotation yeah yep easy in theory we'll see (laughs) so the 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 uh, it's matrixed out to the motors, so you only needed one mm-hmm. current sensor, right? Correct, yeah. Because you're it's just reading just the power the that goes to whatever motor it goes in. to. Yeah. Do, do you have to... Do you have to, like, initialize all of them? Because how do you know that all the motors are at the the point of the edge? That's why you detect the... Um, so it's going to have a command that you can set it to reset them all. Oh, okay. It'll just walk through every and one. It'll just rotate it till it finds a bottom edge, and then it's done. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because you could turn on and not know where you're at, basically. Correct. No, that's that's true. Are these all like super high torque motors? Do they have? Do they overshoot? Or as soon as you find that edge, can you kill the power and they just stop? They pretty much. They're geared. Yeah. Um, they pretty much just stop. Okay, so you can you can you can get basically lock them all in this in a very known state. They don't like if you take the the coil screw because it is a screw. The <laughs> yeah. coil, yeah. yeah. Like the coil just flops around. By the way, like there's not a lot of precision in this machine. Oh yeah, isn't the coil just sitting like in a in a like kind of a groove? No, it's 
it's sitting not in a groove it just flops <laughs> just right sits there like on a shelf basically it sits on a shelf yeah it is seriously like the inside of these machines is like the cheapest stuff ever hmm. like there's no precision at all it's like all put together with with tech screws it's it's awful i mean they they have one purpose and they serve that purpose they do they do it doesn't surprise me that they break like a lo- i know a lot of people complain like oh the snack machine's broken or whatever yeah because they're pieces of junk <laughs> and and i you've probably mentioned this before but i don't i don't recall when it comes down to uh serving a a, a, a an item can you choose how many rotations it takes to actually serve that item? I mean, I'm, of course, in your code, you can. But in a regular vending machine, does it expect one rotation is one item? Yeah, one rotation is one because that's what a slot is in the in the coil. One rotation moves a coil slot forward one. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. But of course, with yours, you could make it whatever you want. Yeah, I could do whatever I want, but it's going to be one to one because... Why would you skip a spot? Well, because everything... Well, I don't know what you're putting in it. You're being cryptic about what's going into the machine. So. I guess. I guess. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let, let's move on before I, I pressure Parker too much to tell us what goes inside. We, we, we will know in, <laughs> I guess, next a week, month. Yeah, I, I've, been, I've been posting pictures of it. Do you see the one with all the RGB lights going? It's yeah, it's very uh, like gamer snacky. So that was only that was only 20% power on the LEDs. <laughs> well, <laughs> now, you know, you don't need much more, <laughs> if any. Oh, I put it the 100 to test it. Is it like blinding? Uh, it's really, really bright. So so Parker sent me a picture of the uh, snacky machine in his garage. Just just beaming with rgb beaming light. power <laughs> i put a lot i put what is it um it's got a 20 amp 5 volt power supply for the rgb just just in case and like yeah just in case yeah well i'm just saying that that line um, is purely for the leds right yeah, yeah it's got its own power supply for led power and then um and i put like what is it is it 10 gauge yeah, it's 10 gauge wire to hook it up to the RGB. Are so they RGB strips? I have enough RGB. It's got. F- hmm? Are they RGB strips? What was that? <clears throat> yeah, they're strips. Okay. Um, we're going to add more later. It's got. A, it's hit the MVP goal for how much RGB lights it needs. So that's just what it's going to have for now. Going to add more later, but. Wait, are these all individually addressable LEDs? So you can. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay, oh, yeah. so so there can be so maybe there's something involved in the lights, or the lights tell you something, or or mm. something. Maybe no, we we'll probably won't do that. <laughs> that's this, that's too it's much. Purely, it's purely peacocking. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, at DefCon, like that is a an eye catcher. Let's just put it, people people yes. will probably love that. Yeah. Did you wait? Did you did you put reflective surfaces on the inside of it? No. Okay, because that would be funny if you coated the the sides and the back of the inside with like uh, chrome tint or or you know something reflective. So it oh, was yeah, like the, an infinity box the, of RGVs, acrylic mirror. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought we thought about that. Um, we got other ideas on what we want to do with the glass on Snacky. It won't. It's not in the MVP, but. Um, why do we call it an MVP? It's not the most it's not a most valuable person. Why do we call the like these features are like the most important for your Rev one an MVP? Uh, I don't know. I I don't think I call it that, but whatever. I've heard that called a lot. Um why is it called that though? I, these well, are the things you must hit, right? Mission critical. Yeah, items. but I like that better. Yeah, I like mission critical better too. Hmm. Well, if you know why we call 
mission critical features for a product, an MVP item, go to macfab.com slash slack. Let us know. (laughs) Let us know. All right. So uh, I got something funny that I ran into this week and I feel I feel terrible for like haha funny or like oh no both <laughs> funny <laughs> both but both? actually probably the second uh sec- part of that which i feel really bad for the designer of this because it's something so it's, that- it, so it's uh it's so funny it because it, it's true like it hurts i guess it's something that you think might happen but you kind of hope doesn't happen and then it did happen and you're just like oh no so I've been uh, talking the last few weeks about my micro tracer project that uh, I've, I've finished up. And uh, one of the things that's really cool about it is somebody wrote some code actually in Fortran, which is kind of cool, uh, called extract model. And, and this is just an executable that you can place some files that you generate with your micro tracer, basically in a folder with this executable. It'll go look at those files. It will create best fit curves that fit everything and then automatically create a brand new spice model for you to simulate in whatever spice software you want to use. So you create a spice model that's based off of physical data that you take on whatever you have. So if you wanted to get really, really anal about stuff, you could actually create individual spice models for your devices and then model your whole system. Your tube. Basically. So the micro tracer is your tube tester slot. It's not even a tester. It's more like a. It's a data gathering uh, device. Yeah, it, I would call it like a tube analyzer. Yeah, yeah. And okay, you, you, you're totally right about that. It, it's called a tube tester, but the data that it gives you doesn't say like good, bad. It just yeah. spits out a bunch of data, and then you do whatever you want to do with that data. It, it's kind of it, okay. It's it's exactly the same thing as a transistor curve generator, if if anyone's ever played with those. Uh, so so those it, it, this just gives you curves. You can get some more useful information like transconductance and plate resistance and things like that. Um, it, it will display those and calculate them, or you could just get all the data, throw it into Excel and calculate all that if you if you so wanted. But this this other person created this entire thing called extract model it sifts through all your data does a boatload of curve fitting and have a lot of other fancy stuff i mean the amount of work that this one script does is is staggering to be honest uh, it's 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 very very difficult to do by hand and to write a script that's intelligent enough to be able to do this is is incredible and and the thing is so when you when you create or when you take data using the U-Tracer, there's a function that, or a button basically, that's just save data. And it saves it as a, as a CSV file of just, here's, you know, this column is this current, this column is this voltage, blah, blah, blah. And <clears throat> ever since the beginning of the U-Tracer in version three, and for like years, it, I, which that came out in like, I don't know, 2011, uh, something like that. That CSV file has not changed at all and it, it's just been static. So this extract model function would absolutely work with it. Well, with the advent of the U-Tracer 6, which is the second model of this, the, the designer of the U-Tracer, or I, I say U, it's MicroTracer. MicroTracer. Uh, they changed the export such that the CSV file now has one extra column. And that extra column is in the middle of all the data. It's not at the beginning or the end or anything. So this entire script that somebody wrote an enormous amount of, or put a ton amount of time into it. And like, there's like a full, like huge white paper on this uh, that, that talks about the theory of operation and how it actually goes. And like the amount of work is insane. The guy who wrote this is a, uh, is a uh, physics uh, PhD and uh, has a PhD in physics and is I, I I suppose is friends with the original designer, but the original designer just kind of went poof in a way to uh, the way that this script works, which is so unfortunate. And it's sort of a lesson I think is the dangers of basing your project on someone else's. 
especially if you just make assumptions or expectations that whatever you receive from someone else's project is just going to be static. And it may be for eight years, a decade, and then a new version comes out and it just kills your entire project. Um, I remember we had a- Kills a, your entire workflow. Kills, Yeah, kills your entire workflow. I remember having a lot of conversations at Macrofab about that because Macrofab has made their own platform basically from scratch, not basically from scratch. And, and, and yeah. one of the difficult things is there's a lot, there was a lot of things that existed that Macrofab could have used as like plugins or, or modules that, that would work for them. And I'm sure Macrofab has used plenty of those, but there was a whole conversation about how much does Macrofab's project or anyone's project rely on someone else's and how easily can that break? And I, I see a lot it's of a, things. It's a big lesson in um, just modern software development is falls into that trap a lot. Yeah. Um, like a lot of the current exploits are like software exploits are finding exploits in libraries that are used in everything. Mm hmm. Yep. And uh, like, okay. In fact, I think, I think even uh, an example, like when the Nintendo Wii came out, I remember there were little adapter boards that you could open up your Wii and you could mod it and, and like solder them in and, and access different functions and things like that. I think that's an example of you make a product that's based on someone else's product that you know has a bazillion of them in circulation. So you at least have some years that your product can last or, or, or have, uh, or, or work for somebody. Now, if, if like, let's say somebody made some kind of like handheld little game and they were selling 300 of them on, uh, you know, eBay or something like that. And you decided to make an entire product based on this little short run little thing. It, it, that may not be the most wise because whoever designed the original device could easily change it and just completely destroy yours. So anytime you're looking to make something that adapts or changes someone else's project, just consider the impact that you have no control over that and it can break in an instant. And when it breaks, you may get people knocking on your door, especially if, if you know, you're charging money for whatever you're doing. In my situation with this extract model thing, this is just a script I found online and it's a really easy workaround. I can just delete columns out of a CSV, make it look like the old version and it will function because the data is still the same. It's just the formatting is what changed. It's annoying because I have to do a lot of extra work to get things, uh, to function, but if I need it, I, I can do it. It's just, oh man, that's, that's unfortunate. And I, I think one workaround, those two solutions. Yeah. What's that? One is Python script to reformat your CSV file. I thought of that already. Uh, I was thinking about it. Okay. That's, that's, that's two, an easy one. Yeah. Two, learn Fortran and fix script, fix extract model. <laughs> I, you know, I was, I was joking around at least. I bet you at the very beginning, that. all it does, I bet you at the very beginning of that script, all it does is it's just, it just gobbles in the file and parses it out. And all you got to do is just add in a section where it parses out that new column. Now, this is okay. I, I think this is how it works. And I, I just, I say think, cause I don't know, but this is, this would make sense in terms of how it fails. I, I think the parser expects every column to be what that column is supposed to oh, be. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what, how CSV parser works, except it could have been written to check the column name uh, just the, the header of the column and say, is this the right column and go find the data. And that would, that would future proof it against these kinds of problems. Unless the person like the maker of micro tracer decides to change a name or something. Could be. I think that that makes it a little bit more bulletproof though, to say like, okay, I want to find which column is this voltage. Well, it's, it's always been named this, you know, and that would prevent if the columns are out of 
out of sync with each other or out of sync with other files. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, there, there's, there's, there's a thousand ways to skin that cat. Yeah. So Emmett in chat says, uh, it's like building off of Facebook. I've never yep. used the Facebook API, but I have used like the Twitter API and that thing changes like every week. It feels like that API changes. Um, and I eventually ended up abandoning a lot of projects because of that. Um, now there's some modules that are updated enough, like in Python and stuff that as long as you keep the module updated, it keeps in sync with, cause there's, there's a group of people that are passionate about making sure that module is working with Twitter for, for example. So that keeps updated. Now you're relying um, on two people for your project to go right, or two groups, I should say. Well, no, this is the whole modern problem with software developments. Absolutely. That you, you're talking about hardware. Yeah. This has been a thing in software for like decades. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I this and this one is an interesting thing where this is a uh, a problem between software and hardware. Oh yeah, yeah, and it's but it and the thing that really sucks is it's it's a really easy fix. I don't know if there's ever going to be an update though. So be the change. <laughs> well, I could be. I, I I suppose I suppose I could be. I don't think that the source code is available. I might. I I would need to check. I don't know if ah. it is. It because uh, this is not like a yeah, GitHub. If it's thing. not available, then yeah. Yeah, this is not on GitHub. So, yeah, so yeah. Well, yeah, but it could be the source could just be a wherever on that person's, you know, server. Oh, of course, of course. I'm what I'm saying is it's not as simple as just go and like fork it and make a, a Utracer six version of it. So, so uh, Fabio firmware in chat says, uh, well, Fortran might not be the optimal language choice if you want developers to contribute. I'm going to bet you that one. The, this is this is a ton of assumptions going off right now. One. It's a from a physicist, PhD physicist person. Okay. They probably only learned one language in school and it was Fortran. My dad is a chemical engineer, learned Fortran when he was in college. So I'm going to bet you it's from that era, which is what late seventies, early eighties then mm-hmm. where Fortran was like the thing to do for engineering. Okay. Two. What also will age this person that who developed it is it's tubes. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Steven that is, is a outlier in that community in terms of his age. <laughs> you know, and it's funny. Uh, I remember back in high school, not didn't know it was even earlier. It was junior high when I, when I first started really like probing around with computers, I asked my dad, I was like, Hey, do you have any kind of anything for me to learn programming? I want to, and, and he's like, yeah, I have one of my old textbooks. And he pulls out this little book. It's, it's, it doesn't look like a textbook. It looks like a little like planner. It, it, was, it was tiny, but it was Fortran. And it was from his, uh, he did it in college. It was like 77 or something like that. And I leafed through a book mm-hmm. on Fortran. And it confused me more than anything else. Just because like... <laughs> You're a junior high student in the early 2000s and you're looking and you're going to like Yahoo trying to find Fortran stuff. And it's just no. Yeah, it's already been it's already out of date. Yeah. Well, people were all about what was 2000 like Java, probably Java and Flash. Yeah. And I, I took C in high school. Well, C plus plus. Yeah, I didn't do any programming in college in uh, high school. It wasn't until college that my first programming was assembly. So <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> Start from the bottom all the way up. Actually, I take that back. It was a little bit of MATLAB, not a lot though. I like MATLAB because in and and yeah, I liked it too. Um, because I was in petroleum engineering for a hot minute in college first. Right. And had to learn a little bit of MATLAB to do analysis there. And then went to electrical engineering. And then like the first class on programming and electrical engineering at UT, at least back then, it's probably different now. I think they actually changed it when I was there. Um, is It was assembly first. 
and uh, then C, and then I had a databases class that was in Java. Yeah, that sounds right. I did not like that class. <laughs> Java was confusing. Yeah. So I've never touched Java. I wouldn't even know. I, I would not recommend it. <laughs> Stick with Python. Python's nice. Python's awesome. Safe. I don't remember. I was doing something the other day. I, I think, it, oh, yeah, yeah. I was playing with a Tekinter to get a GUI up uh, up and running. And mm-hmm. I, got, uh, I got a GUI up and running, and I got it showing, like, data on a plot in, like, 30 minutes. It was awesome. Yeah. The... Um so what you can do, if, if you can't find the original source or like the source, I would go and change the original source. Like I would, I would, this is me. This is something I use all the time and it was broken and no one else, like the people who have it up on their website aren't maintaining it and they have the source there. I would figure out how to fix it. I bet you it would be pretty easy to fix. Oh, it's somewhere so. on the front end of that script parsing that CSV file. Yeah. And that's generally the first thing it does is do it does that. Right. If you don't have access to that, I would make what I would do is write a Python wrapper script that you call call the Python script that with your CSV file and it fixes the CSV file basically by removing that column, right? And and it goes ahead and it invokes the extract model script already so you just have to call one thing you just called your python script that calls this other script to do the processing side yeah I, I think that's probably the easiest because the amount of work needed to adjust things in python versus finding the source code and learning enough fortran to adjust it and then compile it recompile it like it would be so much easier to do the python i guess it's something about keeping it pure though you're right there is, you're totally right there is something nice where it's like the execution or ask your correct. dad your dad knows fortran yeah, i'm sure he, he remembers <laughs> fortran from 1977 <laughs> my father was a geophysicist like show i don't think he ever had to code he just looked at maps of them show up at his house with and you, you print out all the code show up at his house like print it up on a dot matrix and come over to his house yeah Plop down, go. We, we gotta fix this code. We got, yeah, let's do this. And then it's like an '80s montage since playing in the back, and we're searching through pages and pages of code, pages and pages. And then you like circle one thing on like a, a chalkboard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh man. <clears throat> we'll see. Well, let's know I'll, what you end up doing. Here's the thing, because. The, the end result of this entire script well first of all the, the micro tracer works the only purpose of this script is to create a spice model once you've created a spice model you don't need to create another one i mean i i guess if i wanted to get really mm-hmm. anal i could i could you know t- take data on a bunch of this brand of tube and then make a spice model of like this is an average this brand or this is an average but that's Okay, we're getting way too in the weeds with that. What what I would consider doing is maybe like taking data on all my entire catalog of tubes with the U-Tracer, finding, like averaging all of them, finding whichever one is the hottest, finding whichever one is the coldest, and making three spice models, average, hot, and cold. And then I can use that in LT Spice to, for, to determine everything. So in all reality, like... I would. I don't even really need to make the Python script. I can go through and manually scrub some CSV files. It doesn't really take. Yeah, that but long. you would release it, and then someone in like eight years will be like, "Oh, this is perfect." <laughs> you're right. You're right. maybe when the, when the U Tracer twenty is out and it has a lot. They find S. They find find user user SK eighty six on some form <laughs> that has posted this Python script. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Hacker Man 86. <laughs> so we'll we'll oh, see. Man. We'll see like, oh, um, if I get there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of getting there, 
So last week for a little bit, we talked about this like low poly smoker. Uh, so it's like a it's like a meat smoker that's made out of just lasered steel, and that's like all oh, got finger joints. This is a design Steve and I are are starting to work on, and uh, uh, last week was basically like we just came up with a random idea and you know how cool it would be. And we kind of set some like guidelines on what kind of tools you would need. Basically, what we're f- figuring is. You need three tools to make this thing. You need a welder that can weld steel. Um, you need an angle grinder and then a chop saw. Those are the three tools you will need to build. So, like, we're limiting the tool sets to those three tools. Um, and then with that, uh, you also have to be able to buy everything online so that you can, like, buy a kit, in quotes, like, from, like, say three vendors yeah so you're not like fabricating this from from scratch yeah this is this is like it's a kit your first welding project kind of thing so you buy everything pre-cut or mostly pre-cut and you do a lot of the hard work like building the smoker body and stuff is like everything kind of like slots together Mm. and then like the easy part like the legs you can just like you know chop saw it and then like eyeball it and like it goes together right yeah so so you buy your welder you buy you, you, the, a table to weld up you weld up that table and then you buy this smoker and you weld that on your table yes that's kind of the idea because uh, like a welding table should be like one of the first projects you do when you're after you learned how to like make metal stick the metal um and so one of the things we were thinking about is, okay, how expensive is this going to be? Because one of all, first of all, it's like made out of quarter inch steel. So it's <laughs> pretty heavy smoker. Yeah. Beef. Um, and just a lot of mass. I think like just the body itself with like the firebox and is like Steven calculated it out to be like 534 pounds of steel. So we haven't added like legs in the that's, stack that's, and like the inside parts. Like 534 is yeah. without the firebox. That's just like. Oh, that's without the firebox. No, that's just the tube portion. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Fu- it's got the ends at least, right? Yeah, yeah. The ends the ends, and okay. the, the eight pieces okay. of the octagon. So you add the firebox is probably, I would t- say, 600, 600 pounds. I'm okay. just guesstimating. But yeah. This is going to be like an 800-pound smoker. Oh, easy. Yeah, once you put easy. the up tube and the legs and everything else, yeah, it's 800 pounds probably. It, like the grates inside and stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, so right before the podcast, one of the things we said last week was we were going to figure out like how much would just like the smoker body cost. Just to be like, how close are we to like just buying a tube? Well, I say tube, but like a pipe, like a 24 inch diameter pipe that's quarter inch wall. Um, how far, far off price wise we are. And uh, so I did actually call around and I here in Houston, Texas, I can get like a 40, basically like a four foot pipe, 48 inch piece of tube, uh, 24 inch diameter, quarter inch wall. I think it ended up being like 1,200, 1,300 after taxes is how much it would cost, which is not the cheapest thing. <laughs> um, and so I just ran this through send, cut, send just to see what it would end up being, just like the body itself. And it ended up being like sixteen hundred, which honestly is actually pretty comparable. Like, well, and and but that sixteen hundred is with the end pieces, right? No, is without that, end pieces. Oh, that that's just the cylinder, just part. the cylinder part. So Oof. I wanted to do like comparison cylinders, like so buying a tube is only like three hundred, four hundred dollars cheaper mm-hmm. in the end. Than if you did the octagon that we're going to do, you know, when you see smokers for sale, it's not too Craigslist bad and stuff like big professional smokers, they're three, $4,000. Yeah. So, you know, this is approaching that. Oh yeah. I mean, like we were looking at some like 
bespoke smokers, like after the podcast uh, last week. Yep. And yeah, they're like, they're like three and a half to four grand easy. Yeah. Uh, for a good smoker. Now, it's like, how do you get cheaper smokers? Well, use thinner steel. Um, it's basically it. It's just thinner steel. But we want to use quarter inch because um, thermal mass is very important for the style of smoking that Steven and I like to do. Um, so it's going to be interesting. I'm, I, I'm going to at least build one. It's That's that's pretty pricey. I, I, I do realize this is why people use like old propane tanks. Like an old 50 gallon propane tank as a smoker body. Because you can, I actually looked those up. You can get those for like 200 to $400 a piece. Now there's other issues with using a propane tank body. Like the fact that you have to be really, really careful when like cutting into it. Like you have to basically purge it. And what you do is you like, you fill them with water, drain it, fill it with water, drain it, fill it with water, drain it. So like you make sure there's no propane gas left in there. Right. Um, but uh, one, those are actually like some places won't even sell them to you. Like uh, uh, a scrap. Like they're just going to take them straight to recycle. Like they won't. Take are they just, are they just afraid that you're going to blow yourself up? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure it happens. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm, I'm sure too. Um, that that's, I, I'm that I'm guessing that is why people do it that way though, because that is definitely the least expensive way to do it, or like finding the smoker on the side of the road like I did for my dad. But even then, that was only like, what three sixteenth steel, so it's not it wasn't like it was super beefy. Yeah, I mean quarter inch is thick. Yeah, and actually I looked, we did price it out with three sixteenth steel, and it only knocked like. $400 off the price. And I'm like, eh, whatever. You're already spending over a grand for the tube. Go for it. Spending a ton. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be a, probably in the end, a $3,000 smoker, which is what you would pay for a good one. Well, okay. So yeah, do, do a little bit of estimates. So the cylinder par- portion you said is 1600. You need end caps, a firebox, the, the, I guess the triangular exit, the smoke tube legs, all the other mm-hmm. steel that like, you know, connects the legs and then the actual grates that go inside. So yeah. Yeah. If you're at yeah, but the whole stuff that goes inside. Yeah. I mean, are, are you thinking about, about probably three grand in the end? Yeah. Yeah. That sounds about right. If anyone knows anyone at uh, send cut send, you know, hit us up if they want to. I found a 15% off coupon. Or send cut send. <laughs> Is it fifteen percent <laughs> off the entire order? Entire order. Oh, there you go. You should buy it all at once. <laughs> buy it all at once. <laughs> and they have to ship you eight hundred pounds. It's worth free of shipping. Steel. It is free shipping, which is crazy. Eight hundred pounds. Is, I, I wonder how many boxes because I've ordered a lot of stuff from them before for projects at work, and the, it comes in cardboard boxes. Even though if you order a lot, so I'm like. How's 800 pounds of steel going to show up as uh, probably a, probably a box per piece. Cause they're just be so heavy. Yeah, probably. It, it's like an ultimate Lego kit. <laughs> or if someone here in Houston has a steel laser cutter that would like to do it for free. <laughs> How about this? How about this? If you laser it for free, I will make you a smoker too. Oh, that's a sweet. Make gig two gig. at once. That is a pretty actually. Sweet we'll gig. make three at once. Oh. We'll make three at once. Yeah, three. One for whoever lasers everything. Yeah. One for me and one for Steve. Ooh, I'm in. How much? How much is is? Well, oh, yeah, you are because you don't have to do anything. Wow. <laughs> we're probably paying the steel price. I'll, I'll, I will drive my welder down and we'll just do like five straight days of welding. I, yeah. Uh, can I do that on the logical box here? Have, We'd have, have to have run welders going at the same time. Well, yeah, because I'd have my welder. Yeah. Mine can technically run on 110, but I don't think I could weld. Not quarter that inch. <laughs> no, I need 220. 
No, we'd have to run an extension cord from the dryer circuits, and then we could do it. That'd be possible. We yeah. can have two welders at once without tripping a breaker because it'd be on different circuits. That would be a lot of fun. You probably won't be able to run anything else in the house, though. Problem is... When you're welding. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, the whole house is shut off. It, the problem is, yeah. I don't have a way to get an 800-pound smoker back up here. <laughs> Put it in the back of your truck. Actually, I don't I don't remember what the, um, what the weight limit of my truck is. It might not be 800. I don't... And how would I even get it into oh, my truck? Oh, um... Yeah, that's, that's actually the thing is I've been trying to think of how I'm getting snacky to DEF CON and uh, get a U-Haul. I think I'm going to use a trailer. Okay. U-Hauls are expensive. Yes, they are. I actually was looking up because I'm, I'm going to rent something. I'm either have to rent the trailer and drive it up or I'm going to rent a box truck and drive box truck up with it. Enterprise is cheaper, I found, for mm-hmm. when you have to do like long-term rental, yeah, like for this trip. So... Um, gotta start shopping around for that. All right, enough about snacky and and smokers. What's so, the last uh, topic? What <clears throat> one last thing? I just I felt like it was worth bringing up because we're an engineering podcast, and uh, there's a really cool feat that just happened. Well, just happened as in the last decade. It, it kind of all culminated to uh, yesterday. The James Webb Space Telescope sent its first official photos i'm I'm using air quotes there uh i say official because it's been sending photos but uh in terms of what everyone's been waiting for of like the first official ones we got yesterday and they're absolutely amazing and i thought it would be uh great to just congratulate everyone who worked on that uh it's been an incredible project that's taken a, a decade and i don't remember something like 10 billion dollars to create and it's just really cool to be alive when humanity's doing these monumental projects like this. So the what's funny about that, what you just said though, what's that? It's like $10 billion. That's in the grand scheme of the U S budget. That is not a lot of money. I mean, Twitter was just about to be purchased for 40 something billion. Right. So 10, 10 space telescopes. Yeah. Yeah. (sighs) That's depressing. The, the so I was listening to some. I, I want more of these things to be done instead of other things. Yeah, it would be nice. Yeah. Uh, so I was listening to one of the designers talk, and uh, they said at the beginning of the whole project, it, they had a vision for the telescope, as in we know what we need and we know some of these targets, but it's not that you're just creating you know, new technology to, to create, to create this. It's like inventing new fundamental ways to get these things done. It's not like, Oh, okay. If I take this circuit and connect it to this circuit and I take this mechanical system and connect it to that mechanic, it's like, no, we have to reinvent the way we think about it just to hit the targets that we want. And what's, what's really cool is with the kind of science we'll, we'll be able to do with this, uh, this telescope we don't even know what questions we need to ask yet. We need to explore first before we get to that level. So I don't know. That's just really exciting. I I remember in December when the uh, telescope launched and uh, I was like, Oh man, in six months, this is going to be cool. And it's crazy. That it's like, Oh my gosh. Okay. We're here today. (laughs) Like it's been six months already, but the engineering feats required for the telescope to work are just obscene. It's it's one of those things where it's like feature creep is is something that Parker and I talk about a lot. And and we're talking about feature creep of like, hey, maybe our little gizmo should also do XYZ. When it comes to something as monumental as as a telescope like this, it's not feature creep at some point. It's like these are all the things that have to work flawlessly for this thing to even like begin to function. I, I heard a number mm-hmm. in the range of 320. There, there was 320 individual things that had to function flawlessly for the telescope to reach its location before even starting. Like if any of those things went wrong, the whole thing was just, just a pile of junk out in space. And uh, the, I mean, like 
how much uh, how much engineering went behind it is is scary. So hats off to all of all of you who participated in that. I wonder if there's a I, w- I wonder if there's a design doc like the design doc for the James Webb telescope is out there. Man, that's really funny that you're saying that. I was thinking about that on my drive home today. That exact thing. I I really wish there was an open design doc that people could look at. And there may be. I I don't know. I would love to see that. To, to learn and grow as an engineer just to say like, okay, what does a design doc for something that huge look like? Like if I was in the position of, you know, being head lead engineer over this entire thing, what kind of document would I even need to create? I, I, I'm sure it's, it's insane. Then again, maybe not. I wonder <laughs> if you can, it just, page one make it work make it yeah <laughs> do thing no, the um yeah i wonder if it's publicly available or if it's not you can probably get it with the freedom of information act maybe i doubt it's i doubt it's classified under what do they call it uh national security I mean, I mean, the federal government here in the United States classifies like everything under that. But <laughs> um, you can get a lot of information with the Freedom of uh, Information Act. So, uh, looks when do you like- can get the design document for the James Webb Telescope? Oh <laughs> uh, well, here's I I don't I just found this. I don't know it. Uh, Space Telescope Science Institute, stsci.edu, has a whole page called tech, Technical Documents. Uh, and like, here's some names of some of the documents here Distortion Calibration of James Webb Imagers. Um, okay, so that's SI aperture files. I mean, the, the, and, and I'm just seeing pages and pages of, of documents. It's probably not the document but this is oh sure it's probably spread out over multiple and i'm sure the document is like volumes right yeah so yeah i guess if you're interested in in reading more about individual systems and how they function or how they become part of the entire thing this is probably a good uh good source starting point yeah coordinate systems of n-i-r-i-s-s I don't even know what that is, but it came out in 2014. Which okay, so the, the one cool. of the one of the things about the James Webb is that uh, it has to run extremely cool, not cool, like extremely yes. cold, like negative 300 something cold. Fahrenheit, and uh, because it is uh, near infrared imaging, it uh, basically you have to eliminate sources of heat so you can see properly, right? So it has an enormous sun shield that always faces towards the sun that brings up some some interesting things that you know i I was looking around for it in the left in the past few months and i didn't find any information about it i mean frankly it didn't look terribly hard but uh one of the one of the things that was confusing me is okay so if you always have to point this sun shield towards the sun how do you point the rest of the telescope where you want it to be right so at any given point, you have to look away from the sun, but you due to the sun, geometry yeah. of how the temp- telescope is, you don't look, you know, directly away from the sun. So you kind of have a cone of what's available and it takes yes. six months for the telescope to be able to sweep enough of the sky to be able to see everything effectively so you have to plan way far in advance to be like oh, okay well in january it's going to be here therefore you have access to this part of the sky just due to the yeah. fact that it has to point away from the sun yes so i mean the hubble's kind of like that anyways it's I mean, like it's that on a, a much shorter a way shorter period right like way shorter time period yes yeah in the matter of like day or days as opposed to, oh, we, we got to yeah. wait six months. But, it's, but it's similar. I guarantee you that this telescope, if if it isn't already, it's being booked out like years, years, years in advance. Oh, it's probably already done. Like they've booked. If you if you were not on the James Webb telescope train 10, day, uh, 10 years ago, 
you're done. The whole lifetime is booked. <laughs> I, I'm going to bet you pretty close. Yeah. Maybe not. Or I, maybe. I, I, Who knows? I bet you there's there's openings. And I bet you it changes, too. I don't know exactly how that works, but it's got to change, right? I guess so. Maybe. Uh, let's wrap this thing up. Yeah. So that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Gilman. Take it easy. Thank you, yes you, our listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Parker and I know. Tweet us at Macrofab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at macrofab.com. Also check out our Slack channel. You can find it at macrofab.com slash Slack.